0: You're listening to I Have Some Notes, a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network. Locally grown, community supported.
1: Hey, I have a pitch for you. A far out horror comedy based on a popular book. I'm into it. Yeah. John dies at the end. Whoa. Okay. Spoilers. That's not a spoiler. It's
0: the name of the movie. Oh, okay. Yeah, okay. Yeah, funny title. Also, John doesn't really die at the end. What? I have some notes.
2: Welcome, everyone, to I Have Some Notes, the movie podcast with cuts, keeps, punch-ups, and tweaks on mediocre movies. I'm your host, Liam Kreswick. I'm Scotty Bourgeois. And I'm Greg Beaver. And today we are discussing John Dies at the End. Uh, and our, we are joined by uh, uh, a guest, a new guest, a uh, longtime friend of mine, new guest to the show. I'm excited to introduce everyone to Pete Morley. Hey, Pete. Uh, gentlemen, how are you? Welcome, Pete. Good to be here. Thanks, thanks for being on. Uh, Pete, of course, is a writer and a PhD candidate in media and cultural studies at the U of A. Uh, so, uh, really
1: dumbing yourself down, coming on this show. <laughs>
3: <laughs> it's a it's a welcome break from my really uh, heavy and disturbing uh, research subject matter.
0: <laughs> oh, spill. Do, Dare, yeah, dare we ask? <laughs>
3: uh, I, I study uh, a very specific small section of the alt right uh, oh, called neo reactionism. It's very, very upsetting.
0: Fair enough. Yeah. So this is this is uh, watching a psychedelic horror movie. Then is just like a, a welcome <laughs> breath of fresh well, air.
3: Yeah, it's so much more fun to think about cosmic <laughs> horror and alternate universes and the possible end of the universe. Yeah. <laughs>
2: yeah, we, we brought you on because I know you're a big fan of the writing of uh, David Wong, uh, a.k.a. Jason Perrin, uh, who wrote this book. But maybe you're on here just because you're really in touch with people who see a completely <laughs> different reality than our own. <laughs> Point of order, Jason Pargan. Yeah. Pargan. Okay. It's
3: actually, a th- I think, Pargin, par-gin But j- I don't know that for sure. You might want to look that up.
0: Well, now uh, I am. <laughs>
2: <laughs> but I I, I – I, I know I said it wrong, but I was very pleased with that joke. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was good.
1: You couldn't just let it hang for one second before you <laughs> actually me. Yes. <laughs>
2: Greg, can you add a, can you add a beat of buffer in the edit? So oh yeah. Yeah. I'm kidding. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Um, uh, Jason P. We shall call him. Uh, of course. Yes. John, John dies at the end. Uh, came out in uh 2012. Directed by Don Coscarelli, who directed Bubba Hotep, which is very coincidental, because as I was watching this, I was like, man, this is kind of like, I should watch Bubba Hotep again. There was a lot of really far out movies from that era. Uh, and then I looked and it's like, oh, it's the same guy. Um, written by Don Coscarelli uh, and Jason P., Jason Pargan, uh, a.k.a. David Wong, that's a pseudonym. Uh, and based on the novel, John Dies at the End by uh, Jason slash David Wong. Uh, yeah, so I guess off the top, I want to ask who among the four of us ha- saw this movie when it came out, versus in the last couple days, uh, and who among us has read the book that it is based on. So I had, I saw this is my second time watching it in my lifetime.
3: I saw it when it came out, um, uh, or shortly thereafter, uh, yeah. but I remembered nothing about it at all, um, even like. When I searched my mind for memories of it, the the interior of the Chinese food restaurant that came to mind ended up being completely different from what was in the screen. So I don't know what my memory of it was. Um, but i had seen it, but effectively not seen it because I didn't remember anything.
2: I had a similar experience. I remembered him talking to Paul Giamatti in a restaurant
0: and nothing else. Uh, I was aware that the movie had come out, but I have never seen it before. However... I have read the book. In fact, I have a copy of it on my shelf. I um,
1: I, I remember the tr- I remember the trailer way back when. Uh, this is my first time with it. I have not read the book.
3: So that's where I stand. Am I the only one who's read the book? In preparation uh, for recording this episode, I got the audiobook, and I've been listening to it. And I really do enjoy the audiobook, but... Because of the way that it was originally published, kind of as a blog, as like a, a blog, kind of presenting itself not as fiction, but it is fiction. The book really tends to meander, um, and so I had a lot of trouble finishing it before I had to watch the movie and record the episode. So I am, I'm about seventy percent of the way through the book.
0: Yeah, the I will say this: you are correct. The book does meander, um, and the movie is much tighter than the book because of that, because they they kind of like pick and choose what they want to do with the story and they just jettison a bunch of stuff. Yeah, But I think that, and this might be getting a little bit ahead of ourselves, uh, both Greg and Liam at the very least were saying that uh, they felt like there was like connective tissue missing between like the first two acts of the movie and the end of the movie. And that's because so much of the middle of the book was taken out. <laughs>
3: Yeah, it it's really wild. They collapse two extremely thin female characters from the book into one somehow thinner character in the in the film. <laughs> yep. Um, they uh, they introduce Doug Jones like at the end of the first act instead of at the beginning of the third act, which is the way yep. it is in the book. Um, and also, uh, Clancy Brown's character, uh, Marconi is like a fleshed out real person with a history and motivations and like reasons for why he's weird and and so on. Uh, And he's just kind of, I don't know, weird non-entity in this movie who kind of shows up and saves the day. It's very, very strange that they decided to keep that character in and they got rid of Jennifer Lopez, who is um, not the singer, Jennifer Lopez, just a woman coincidentally named Jennifer Lopez.
0: Well, actually, David in the book is very inattentive, and he's the uh, narrator basically. Mm-hmm. And there are entire passages of very important expo- exposition in the book that he glazes over because he's too bored by it to pay attention. Um, and one of the one of his recurring traits is that he keeps naming people he meets after celebrities he knows because he can't be bothered to actually learn their real name. And that's true. He names the detective Morgan Freeman, uh, Jennifer Lopez, the character uh, Bob Marley is because he just can't be bothered to remember these people's real names. Uh, And it's, it's interesting. David is, uh, is an interesting character in the book and it's translated in an interesting way to the film. We'll put it that way.
2: Yeah, in our chat, you had described him as sort of like in the book he's he's John's sidekick. Um, but he's also in the in this movie, he's our POV character. Yep. Is that consistent with the book or is like yeah. John the POV
0: character no. in the book? Uh David is absolutely the POV character, but he is definitely John's sidekick. John is this is the hero of the book.
3: <laughs> I also found like in the book he he is the narrator and and our POV character, and John's the main character, but uh his attitude in the book is that he is just like, he's got this slacker attitude where he's above it all and he's exhausted by everything. And he also finds like mundane life to be pretty weird and off-putting. So when things go cosmically horrific, he doesn't react all that much more strongly. Whereas in the movie they've characterized this guy as like really whiny and (laughs) like sad all the time. And also, like, when he starts talking about the cosmic horrors, especially to Arnie, he's like, you you don't understand, man. Nobody can understand how grave and intense my life is. And that's such the opposite kind of character to what David is in the book.
0: Yeah. We had also discussed, there was there's a weird beat at the beginning of the movie with the acts of Theseus. And it's, mm-hmm. it's an interesting relic left over from the book for a subplot that is completely removed from the movie. Mm-hmm. Because uh, it does have a payoff at the end of the book, but the movie does nothing with it. It's just this weird <laughs> thing at the beginning of the movie.
2: <laughs> the movie does worse than nothing. It introduces it. The cold open is a ship of Theseus analogy, but exchanging the ship for a monster hunting weapon. Yep. Um, is it the same weapon that killed this reincarnated guy? And you're like, wow, this this is sick. This is going to make a great, great opening thesis for the movie. Uh, and then it's never picked up again. So it's worse than dropped. It's it's introduced and never utilized.
0: And, it's, and it does have a, a good payoff in the book, actually. Are we worried about book spoilers for our listeners no, who might I be interested don't. in reading the book? In the book, there's a subplot where one of Korok's many schemes to try to enter this universe is he starts sending over basically evil clones of people. Um, and it turns out toward the end of the book, David realizes that he's an evil clone of the original David, who has who is dead. And uh he starts to try to grapple with the idea that he could be a monster, or is he still the same David because he has all of David's memories and personality? And that's where the the axe of Theseus payoff is, basically. It's him asking, okay, if the axe is the same axe, am I the same David? Or if the axe is a different axe, am I a different David? And does that make me a monster? He has a whole tomato in the mirror moment, basically. Yeah,
1: Yeah, that whole thing bummed me out because I've been consuming a lot more uh, philosophy content recently. And that it kind of, my ears perked up at the beginning. It's like, oh, okay, it's interesting. And then,
0: yeah. Uh, yeah, and it's and it's weird. It's <laughs> it's very weird to have left that in and then gotten rid of the whole evil clone subplot. Yeah, the
3: the movie really tricks you into thinking that it's clever by spending so much time on that opening scene with the the ship of Theseus metaphor and the axe murder, um, and and making you think that it's like really going to give some thought to these philosophical issues. But it the whole movie taken together, to me, really feels like. You know when you're a kid and you make a happy birthday sign and you start with the <laughs> giant giant letters for happy and then you get to the B and you realize you have to write Earth Day so you just squeeze it all down to fit on the same sheet of paper? Um, they start spending a lot of time on these things that aren't necessary for the plot but are interesting thematic discussion. And then as they get toward the middle of the film and realize... They have miles to go for any of that to pay off. They just start forgetting and cutting things out. Yeah, that's a great, it's a great analogy for it. Yeah,
0: it, it. On the one hand, I feel like there was a deliberate attempt to adapt the book and streamline it. And on the other hand, it feels like there were a lot of like really last minute sloppy edits mm-hmm. to yeah. cut it down to like a cool hour and a half. So either
1: either that it's or it's suffering from first draft itis. You know,
0: yeah, that's possible.
2: Yeah. The cast, of course, uh, is Chase Williamson as Dave, Rob Mays as the titular John, Paul Giamatti as Arnie Blundstone, Blondstone, Clancy Brown as Dr. Albert Marconi, uh, Glenn
0: Terman as the detective, and Doug Jones as Roger North, who's Robert North in the book, but they changed the name to not make it confusing with Robert Marley. Uh,
2: the around mm-hmm. the time that character was introduced in the movie, I was quickly Googling the author of the book for just like talking to my partner as we were watching it. Um and uh, David Parin. No, we we cover this. <laughs> Pargin. Jason Pargin. Pargin. <laughs> Jason Pargin looks a lot like Doug Jones. He does. Uh, kinda, so when yeah. I looked up Jason Pargin, I'm like, oh, cool, the author is playing this this character in the movie and then the credits roll, and it's like, Doug Jones,
0: I'm like, oh, uh, never mind. <laughs> yeah, you're just not used to seeing Doug Jones not in heavy prosthetic makeup. Yeah. Uh, let's, uh, let's go to the
2: trailer summary and
1: uh, get into our, our more thoughts and fixes. Solving the following riddle will reveal the awful secret behind the universe, assuming you do not go utterly mad in the attempt. If you already happen to know the awful secret behind the universe... Feel free to fast-forward ahead.
3: David, David Wong. Wong? David Wong? You you doze off there? Black stuff, this soy sauce. It's a drug, right?
1: Just tell me what this stuff is, John. The effects don't last that long? the side effects don't last that long. The effects will last the rest of my life, I think.
2: Why don't you tell me? Tell me about your friend, John. I mean, that's tough, Dave. I'm remembering things that haven't
1: happened yet. You got to be really brave to ask yourself the scary questions. Your friend is the only known survivor of the rest of dead. But he's not looking too healthy right about
2: now.
0: He'd be opening doors to other world's mind.
3: tension, Mr. Wong.
1: Oh, it gets better. A lot better.
0: While his best friend John belts out punk rock to scores of college-age partygoers. David Wong meets a mysterious Jamaican magician named Robert Marley with extraordinary powers. The man can peer into David's dreams and seems to know things he shouldn't. Late into the night, John calls David, demanding he come over immediately. The magician has given him a syringe with a drug called soy sauce, and John is acting very strangely. Also, he seems to be able to fold space and time. David loads John into his car, intending to take him to the hospital, but as he speeds away, he sticks himself with the soy sauce syringe he very wisely stuffed in his pocket. The two are then arrested, and John dies in custody. From here, a weird cross-dimensional mystery unfolds that would take longer to explain than we have time for in the summary, so we are just going to speed past a bunch of stuff about ghost doors, eldritch horrors, and naked cultists, just like the movie does in its last minutes.
1: Yeah. Yeah,
2: happy
0: this, birthday this, sign, for sure.
1: That's, that's a, there's a lot of runway that this movie runs out of, the, you know, in the third <laughs> act, and I, th- I think... <laughs> I've heard that analogy before, I don't know why it tickled me so much, but it, yeah, it
2: does seem like it ran out of runway. It was yeah. kind of used
3: in a in a really interesting way that it there's a lot of runway that it runs out of so it, it reaches the end of the runway but it needs more he kind of invented a bunch of imaginary runway there it was really nice
0: yeah if if you really want to break down what of the book this adapts it adapts the like the cold open of the book the framing device the first act of the book and then like the end of the book the climax and end of the book and the epilogue and everything in the middle is just kind of like ripped right out and thrown away. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, why don't like, we start uh, with- oh. Sorry.
1: Like a, a lot of things sort of fall apart. Not just, not just the plot, but, um, suddenly the, uh, the special effects get, uh, a real bad real fast, you know, whereas early in the movie, you're getting a lot of like kind of cool creature effects. Um, maybe not the best creature effects you've ever seen, but like they're creepy and they're practical. Um, and then it gets to, like, literal PlayStation 1 backdrops and things like that. So, and, like, a lot of things seem like they're falling apart very quickly.
0: Yeah, when you say when you say that this movie ran out of runway, this mm-hmm. movie also ran out of budget.
2: Mm-hmm. And it's not an old movie. It's 2012. Like, the Avengers were saving New York the same year this movie came out.
3: <laughs> yeah, It. W- uh, what struck me about it uh, was... The, like, the practical effects were interesting, but they were also, like, a choice was made to make them be movie-style practical effects, and mm-hmm. the budget was cut on the CGI, so the CGI looks 10 years older or even 15 years older than it should. Um But uh, that's because, like, I th- I would have thought that a-, a book like this, or source material like this, would have been made into an indie movie because it has a very... I mean the book itself is an indie book it was one of the first few to be published kind of online serially uh, in 2001 um, and it's had an indie story behind it the whole time but kind of the flip side the cynical side of indie movie in terms of low-budget filmmaking is B movie and this movie really had a, a B movie attitude to it where instead of trying to make a good movie with a low budget they were trying to make a ridiculous movie with a moderate budget and it, it wound up seeming a little bit cynical and a little bit condescending to me where they were like, wouldn't it be crazy, you know, if we tried to make a movie out of this book, uh, what would it look like instead of actually trying to make a movie out of this book?
0: That's interesting as well, because a lot of the people who were involved in the making of this movie were fans of the book, and that includes Paul Giamatti who you'll note is an executive producer on the film. He loved the book and he was excited to be part of this film. And Clancy Brown, of all people, really liked the source material and was excited to play Marconi in the movie.
3: But there's so little indication, it's so strange. Like, I wonder what the conversation between Coscarelli and Clancy Brown specifically would have been like when they're developing the Marconi character. Because to me, Marconi comes off as like a, like a New Jersey Italian, vaguely Catholic, New Age sort of person, mm-hmm. um, and what tiny, tiny smattering of him we get in the film. Uh, even though his name is Marconi, he has this weird, like Russian accent, or almost like a Hungarian Dracula accent. Like I, <laughs> it's really strange to me why these people. Why, Clancy Brown, in specific, seems to have liked the source material, but then done such a strange backward job on this character. He made he made some choices. Or maybe the director made some choices. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's what I say. Yeah, I'm curious who, who made that choice because it doesn't seem like a helpful one to me.
1: Yeah. I mean, maybe they were thinking that they were kind of doing a Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy type thing where like, it's a new medium and we're just going to kind of do a remix on, mm. on the book, you know?
2: Um, that's a good analogy or not analogy comparison, uh, to, to Hitchhiker's Guide, obviously a a much better movie, but
1: it had that kind of same kind of like far out attitude. Um, I was thinking that like, like the aesthetic they were trying to hit was sort of like a Bill and Ted smashed together with army of darkness almost like that, that kind of, uh, irreverence and, you know, but it just, most of the time I felt while I was watching it that I, I don't know. I guess I didn't really feel much. Like, there was, there was lots of zany things happening, but I wasn't, I didn't feel engaged. I wasn't necessarily not entertained. Um, uh-huh. but I, I just didn't feel like it was exciting me a whole lot.
3: One of the things that I found, um, kind of difficult to take was that the and i mean i i kind of hate it when people who are familiar with source material complain about a book not being faithful to the a faithful adaptation um but in this case like the the jokes in the book are uh, pretty clever and there are also dumb jokes and part of the joke is that everybody knows that they're dumb jokes and then in this film kind of the opposite is happening where the dumb jokes think they're good jokes. And then they go in for a smart joke. Like there's a line just in the last 20 minutes, there are two of them. There's one where John uh says don't kill us with spiders we would call that arachnicide on our planet which is not true um because arachnicide would mean you're killing spiders not killing people with spiders and there's also like a throwaway line about franz kafka's head exploding which seems like not to indicate that the screenwriter knows who franz kafka is or what like terms like deicide regicide arachnicide actually are supposed to mean it seems like it's really trying to punch above its weight intellectually
2: yeah, I, I felt that way with the Franz
0: Kafka line where I was like it felt out of place. It was I feel I feel almost like the Franz Kafka line might be something that was left in the film after something was cut out of it. Like they they felt like there was a punchline to a joke they wanted to keep but there was some of some of the joke was left on the cutting room floor.
2: Oh, I think it's the other way. I think that was punch if it was if that's not a joke that's in the book. I think that's punch-up. I bet they had comedians take a pass at punch-up and were like, yeah, that that, that screamed punch-up to me.
3: Because Franz Kafka, like the the word Kafka as it's entered our lexicon is supposed to refer to like the absurdity and futility and despair of interacting with like overly Byzantine bureaucracies, right? Yeah. Um, and kind of the, the ridiculousness of everyday life, and how surreal it is to be told you're not a person by this giant bureaucratic machine that itself isn't a person. And none of that has anything to do with the cosmic horror scenario that they're walking through at the time where he says, uh, are you thinking what I'm thinking? Yeah, if Franz Kafka saw this, his head would explode, which also doesn't indicate how Franz Kafka would feel about it
2: yeah I, I yeah I think it was more just like there's some real cockroachy looking characters around so we'll we'll oh we'll it's cite just bugs co- <laughs> yeah I think it was
3: just a bugs joke yeah <laughs> i then it it went right over my head I didn't I, and, even and that's get that but I was. think that
2: ties back to what you're saying about it punching out of its weight class where it was just trying to be like what's what's the the one degree away from cockroach reference we can make right oh Franz Kafka's head would explode when really you were like looking for the like mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, that's so I think you're right it yeah punches out of its its weight class. Um not to say all the jokes didn't land there were some some charming moments. Uh and I was going to say what what did we like about this flick because there as Greg said, he was entertained but he wasn't, you know, captivated. So, um practical effects, one thing I want to highlight, I I love a squirmy worm. Um I, <laughs> I thought I love the meat squir- suit at the beginning big, was great. The meat, meat suit, big, suit looked great. Was wonderful.
0: Big fans of wet puppets. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, the meat suit was, was pretty decent. Um, I, I, I liked John and David for the most part. Like, yeah, David's not one-to-one his book character, but I think they had a fun little dynamic going. I thought they bounced off of each other very well. And like, I was, I was invested in seeing where they were going.
2: Yeah. They were a good capsulation of that, like early 2010s slacker attitude that, I don't know. Maybe just because I was in my mid twenties in that time, I related to then and now of like not too cool for it, but not trying too hard. Like just sort of like, oh, what do you mean? I gotta get up and go to work slash save the universe. Um, I thought I thought it struck that kind of Scott Pilgrimy um, mid mid uh, mid to early twenty teens slacker energy pretty well. Um,
0: I really like the subplot with the detective, and I think it's the strongest story in the film, and it is one of the stronger stories in the book as well, and I'm glad that it it made it to the film. It makes it to the film largely intact, and I think that whole thread is very good, in spite of anything else in in the movie. (laughs) I don't disagree, but can
2: you explain that to me? Because where I kind of got lost in the movie is when the cop dies— that does happen in the book too. <laughs> no, I don't doubt it. Um, I just mean like, just make like, so I understand. The cop was investigating these strange drug deaths. Yep. And was you know trying to figure out why what happened. All these people had visited Robert Marley's house at one point. Yeah. Before Here's- meeting John and David, um, when when he's trying to burn the trailer down. Hmm. And also. W- w- When does he get possessed by bugs that kill him?
0: Uh, He gets possessed by bugs during the initial investigation Uh, around the same time around the same time that uh, that uh, what is Justin also gets possessed by the bugs. Uh, But the, the the thing with the detective as well, and this is this is true with David and John as well. The detective is the hero of his own story, and David is just along for the ride. And that's kind of David's whole thing through the book, is that he's constantly, he's constantly orbiting around a much more interesting thing that's happening and can barely be bothered to be engaging with it because he's such a slacker.
3: <laughs> yeah, he's, he's like a, a background character uh, for a whole bunch of interesting stories that don't happen in the book um and we all get to see his fly on the wall perspective um when it's a series of vignettes of seemingly unrelated characters like john is the main through line the detective is one of the characters lisa ends up becoming uh one of the characters who has a uh real things happen to her um you could argue that like a more interesting story would be told from the perspective of Justin turning into shitload and, and doing the crazy things that he does. Yeah. Um, Which is also
0: truncated in the movie.
3: Yeah, exactly.
0: The, um, the detective is actually, if anything, he's a, co- he's a traditional cosmic horror protagonist mm-hmm, in yeah. that, in that he, he is a, he is an investigator. He gets into a weird, like occult mystery he starts to unravel because of it he starts like taking drastic action he goes kind of crazy and then he dies <laughs> which is like a love the main character of any lovecraft story you've ever read
3: especially cthulhu that's the the one that that really centers around a cop specifically and not some kind of academic greg what was your favorite part
1: um i think a, the the world building that was going on between Arnie and and David, I felt that's where the movie was at its strongest. Um, That's where I felt like I was being teed up for something much more entertaining than I eventually got. But like, I think about, you know, I was about halfway through the movie thinking like, "Ah, this is, I'm enjoying myself. I think I'm, I'm interested. I'm invested in, in, you know, what's going to, what's going to happen, (laughs) you know? um, And Paul Paul Giamatti's, you know a strong actor, and that was definitely helping those scenes play along. Uh,
2: I quite like the the twist at the end. Uh, the reveal that he's not yeah, he's that was e- even though you fairly egregious use of a white man using the n-word. I thought it was a good a, a fun way to reveal that that twist
0: um and it also it pays off the little vignette at the beginning where they're both seeing the ghost of that woman,
2: yeah, Different, right. 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 Which and, which is interesting because that's an example of the the setup for that was ham fisted and the payoff was elegant, yeah. Because that that whole scene with the with the lady who turns into snakes, who they were both seeing as a different person, makes no sense in the context of any of the rest of the movie. It it's truly like it's mo- I feel like just there to establish that they're kind of supernatural X file style like mystery hunters. Um, now, but yeah. it really is just there to set up the twist at the end, and I just I don't know how many. Times I've seen, like I don't, you don't often see an inelegant setup and an elegant payoff. It's usually the other way around.
1: <laughs>
3: yeah, that's fair.
2: <laughs> well, I can take the silence to me and we've discussed everything <laughs> we like about the
3: movie.
0: I don't know. I overall, I thought the movie was very watchable, and maybe it's because I came into it having read the book previously, so I kind of knew what I was getting in for. Uh, and I mean. I had kind of stayed away from the movie previous because I had heard mixed things and I was like, eh, I've read the book. I don't want to watch a substandard movie. But kind of being pushed into it by doing it for an episode, I went into it with an open mind. I knew it was going to be an adaptation. I knew what it was adapting. And I wasn't let down necessarily. Like Mm -hmm. it was more or less kind of what I expected. So I, I enjoyed it overall. I didn't hate it.
3: I don't want to make my debut on this wonderful program so overwhelmingly <laughs> negative, but um, I, I went into it really wanting to like it a lot um, and knowing that it had mixed reviews. And usually when a film is a, a little bit of a cult classic uh, or has mixed reviews or is made by a cult director, all of which I think are the case in this this film, I'm always on the side of the movie and I'm always looking for reasons why stuck-up critics don't like it and why it's actually a good thing. And I found nothing here. Um, <laughs> I was really... <laughs> there were things I liked about it, um, but I didn't find anything funny. And I'm going to have to disagree on the casting. I also thought that the, those both those characters were, were miscast. Ooh. Um, and that Dave was... Uh, too whiny instead of exhausted and um, and that uh, John John's supposed to be like shaggy mixed with Raoul Duke I guess <laughs> in my mind and instead he's like kind of a stiffler in this movie yeah. and that's uh, those weren't the two guys that I was planning on hanging out with throughout this adventure um, they're very very different from from what I was expecting and what I think would have been useful for the kind of voice that this story has to
0: say about the relationship between cosmic horror and mundanity. It's, it's almost like the two characters we ended up with were designed to be the two monster hunters that we see in the, in the opening vignette with the meat suit. Mm -hmm. Uh, And they don't necessarily jive with the rest of the story. Maybe.
3: Yeah. I'd, yeah I'd agree with that, yeah
1: yeah I don't see a lot of purpose in either of the opening vignette scenes and like that I think sort of frustrated me more as the movie wore on and I started to realize that I probably wasn't going to get any kind of real payoff for that um especially as we got right into the, the climax of things started happening ex- extremely fast and the pacing started to throw off and the you know the visuals got laughable and i i sort of really started to to check out at that point but like overall i think my biggest f- criticism of it is just like it's just kind of a bit dull like despite of this despite the fact that like there's all these wacky things going on like for the most part like david's he's kind of a pretty empty character and for a movie that's named after him, John is almost non-existent. Like the 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 character has a, as about as much uh, to do with the plot as um, the character of Amy does, which is basically nothing. Um, I think even I think the dog has more to do <laughs> with the plot than than John does, which is which I think just had me confused uh, through most of the film. And yeah, I don't know. And and I yeah. guess I guess the fact that. Um, I, I mean I does does John kind of die in the end is it implied that like he's the dog somehow is that what it is
3: he so I think what you're I think what I took away from it is that the cop at that time under the influence of white bugs lies to Dave and says that John has died in the interrogation and Dave somehow escapes off screen um Then we don't see him again until they're in the back of the liquor truck. But at that point, Dave has used the soy sauce to put himself in a transdimensional coma and possess
0: the dog. Um, To be fair, the dog also had bitten uh, Bob Marley earlier on in the movie and and, and gotten dosed with the soy sauce through his blood. So the dog was also sauced up
3: and the dog gets repeatedly sauced up by different monsters and different people throughout the book so the dog is constantly a conduit for any human who has sauce who knows how to search through the cosmic frequencies yeah and and use her as an avatar basically
0: um, the dog is the dog is a female dog named Molly in the book for the record right Apparently, the change was made for the movie because they they screen-tested several dogs, and the only dog that was good was a boy dog who was actually named Barkley, and so they just rolled with it. (laughs) Cute.
2: Um, I want to circle back to to what Greg was saying about the first two vignettes, the the axe thing and then the meat monster and the, the lady who looks different to the two of them and then turns into snakes, and then they call Marconi and blows her up. Because those are so, they have such little to do with the rest of the movie and are also kind of told out of order. Um, they're both sort of showing how these two guys are like supernatural monster hunters. And then 20 minutes into the movie, the story kicks off in a fairly linear fashion. Based on the fact that Robert Marley at one point says, Time isn't a hose, man, it's an ocean. I got the impression they were almost trying to do like an arrival where, like, spoilers for Arrival, I'll mm. pause for a second, if you want to fast forward. Spoilers for Arrival, they're trying to do, like, a time is a flat circle thing, and because they're all sauced up, they experience time non-linearly, and so then the movie is presenting events non-linearly, but they do not have Danny Villeneuve storytelling chops, <laughs> they do not have the foresight to, like, truly tell an out-of-time Story and and that's the best I could justify for having those two vin- vignettes in the beginning before we ever meet Paul Giamatti um, is just like yeah I think they were tra- and same with that thing at the end where they go to the other dimension and then the guys come and they're like will you save us they're like yeah we'll be right back to save you wink wink and then leave I felt like those That scene at the end and the two at the beginning was trying to establish, like, this is a non-linear story, man, and it's like, time is an ocean, and it's like, (laughs) no, you you just put non-sequiturs at the beginning and end of a linear
1: story and tried to call it a rival, and it's I, I think you may be giving the screenwriter too much credit. (laughs) <laughs> well, I'm saying they failed, so I don't know. <laughs> that, 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 that was their intention? I'm not, su- I'm not sure. Yeah,
3: you could argue, uh, kind of, like, if they were going for, like, a Pulp Fiction-style thing, and to have, like, a diegetic reason for Pulp Fiction-style storytelling, which mm-hmm. Arrival has and a, a few other movies have, um, like, that would be uh, great and everything, but it still bumps up against the title, which is John dies at the end. And yeah. so you could you could argue, like if John did die in the interrogation room, you could argue that that was the end of the movie and time is a flat circle. And so the time at which the movie stops is not the actual end, but that John somehow goes back in time to the interrogation room and that's where his life ends. Just like uh, Vince dies at the end in Pulp Fiction, except that that happens, that, that, that only happens at the end. If you choose Vince's story as the main story and in the way that it's presented in Pulp Fiction, it happens somewhere in the middle when he gets shot with a tech. I love mind, I I telling,
2: telling people Teddy dies at the end of memento. People have never seen memento. Just being like, Oh, it's a great movie. Teddy dies at the end of memento. Then-
0: I've actually watched somebody did a cut of uh memento in order oh. and it's, and it's, it's mind blowing.
2: wild uh well speaking of mind-blowing i think we have some mind-blowing fixes for this film so let's hear from our friends at the alberta podcast network and when we come back we will fix john dies at the end
0: hello i'm elizabeth bonkink
2: i'm andrew paul
0: and we're the hosts of the well-endowed podcast
2: The Well Endowed Podcast is produced by Edmonton Community Foundation, or ECF as we call it.
0: ECF provides grants to charities through the endowment funds we create and manage with our donors.
2: Hence the title of our show, The Well Endowed Podcast.
0: Every month, we bring you a collection of stories and interviews with fascinating guests who are working to make Edmonton a strong, vibrant city to live in.
2: Through these stories, we look at the space where endowments intersect with your communities.
0: So if you're interested in the people and issues impacting your community, check out thewellendowedpodcast.com. Get ready to take the guesswork out of choosing a school. Go to Edmonton Public Schools Open House. Meet the staff and ask your questions to learn about their schools and programs. Explore your options and find the school that feels right. Find event dates and learn how to make the most out of your visit at openhouse.epsb.ca. Know before you go and feel confident and excited when you get there.
2: Welcome back to I have some notes. We're talking John dies at the end, uh, and as we go into our fixes, fellas, I, I, based on my fix, I would like to go first if I can, because mine is a structural one that I feel like anything you guys have can fit within it. If you'll if you'll so indulge me, by all means. Um, and I, I love that you guys touched on it in the beginning. Scott and uh, Pete were talking about how David is this sort of like distant character who is always around for interesting things happening. And then other characters are the main characters of their own story as John plays witness. And the reason it's all from John's narration perspective is because he's then recounting all of these somewhat disparate David. Sorry. Thank you. David is the main character who is recounting to Paul Giamatti, all of these disparate events. And we are also talking about how there's like two scenes at the beginning, one scene at the end that kind of are just like, Off in their own little world and don't really tie back to anything other than to set up that sometimes when you see a ghost, it looks different than the other people who see the ghost. Uh, So my fix (laughs) is weirdly based on a different movie that I saw very recently that I think you can wholesale take the structure of the film Tampopo and use that as the template to rebuild this movie. Uh, so, Tampopo uh, is not a cosmic horror. It is a Japanese film from 1985, uh, all about food, all about the love of food and the culture of food, uh, and it is told the same way an improv format known as a Herald is. Ah. And so, a Herald, for those maybe who aren't theater kids, uh, is when... The improvisers do a scene that establishes some characters, some themes, usually based on the suggestion they get from the audience. It's a bit of a longer scene, and they do that bit. And then, based on that one scene, you see a bunch of short, quicker improv scenes based on things that were said or established in that first scene, completely tangential, different characters, different settings, whatever. And then, at some point, they go back to that main storyline. Time has passed, you do a little bit more with that main story, and then you go off on some more wild tangents. Tampopo, structured very much the same way. Uh, Tampopo is about a Japanese widow who uh, inherits her husband's ramen shop, and a bunch of truck drivers and community people teach her how to make good ramen. Meanwhile, in between all of her learning to make good ramen, you get these like vignettes just about food. Different characters different settings. The through line though is is food and the love of food, Uh, including a very strange kind of narrator character who is aware he's in a movie, breaks the fourth wall, talks about the food you eat at a movie theater, you know, people crinkling chip bags and stuff. Also just for a lark, Google Tampopo egg yolk scene, Uh, you won't be disappointed. Um, And you don't need the context for it. (laughs) Um, So I I was thinking about this movie, How Do You Fix It? My pitch is you structure this like an improv herald slash Tampopo. So you have the David, you start with David and Paul Giamatti in the restaurant, and David's like, look, I got some shit to tell you. I need you to tell you my story. I don't experience time linearly. It's going to take some tangents, but I promise you this is going somewhere. You need to hear it. And there's our, our kind of our narrator character. There's our our base, uh, and the main through line is just the concept of the soy sauce, the weird shit that happens with with David. David is the ramen, like David's experience before the the Chinese food restaurant is our ramen shop developing. And then you you take the the ship of Theseus thing, you take the meat monster ghost thing, hell, you could even take the thing at the end. All their, like, weird Monster Hunter shit, you put that in the middle of the movie, and you just sort of have David recounting all of these curious experiences he had with the one through line being this soy sauce, and that's him just trying to get Paul Giamatti to believe the power of the sauce. Um, That's that's my fix. (laughs) And you structure it like a Herald, where you keep coming back to the diner, you keep coming back to... What's unique and interesting about the soy sauce and anything with Marconi, the cosmic horror, whatever is are all tangents that that reinforce a theme
3: while not being linear story beats that's a sweeping change um but that also I think is kind of exactly how the book is structured. there's because it's it's based on a blog. well, yeah. Um, there's, uh, one point where, um, a climax is kind of happening and it reaches such a point that David loses consciousness. Mm -hmm. Um, and then he wakes up, I think six months later, um, or maybe even a year. And he calls John and he's like, how did I get home? What's going on? And John's like, yeah, you call me every couple of weeks with this question. It's been six months since that thing happened. You just haven't been able to form new memories in this interstitial period of time. And that's kind of the midpoint of the book. And everything <laughs> happens episodically between David meeting Arnie uh, and then that point and then the end point. Everything else are sort of like these hazy episodes that happen in orbit of those three main plot staples.
0: Yeah.
2: And I, I I don't I don't disagree. It's a sweeping change, but also what I pitch, you can take what's already been shot and edited and put together, and just rearrange it. Yeah, totally. Is more or less my pitch. Maybe find there's some places you could tighten up clarity uh, and continuity, but for the most part, you can take what's already there and just much like uh, Memento told chronologically, just restructure it in a way <laughs> that makes a little more sense
3: one thing i would have liked to see them do is a tonal change and i've already talked about them punching out of their weight in terms of in terms of jokes i think that could have been fixed um but um one of the things the book does really well is making the mundane horrifying or at least insufferable so that when the horrifying happens it's just also unsufferable instead of horrifying Um, And that it uses that to great comedic effect. That's kind of like the heart of David's comedic voice is that he can say really terrifying things that are just like exhausting to him. And then he can also say like recap his, his experience working a shift at the video store that he works at. And it sounds just as detrimental. And uh, so, like a, a prime example of this is the, the Chinese restaurant that they meet in is called they China food with an exclamation point. And it turns into a racist joke in the film because the Chinese restaurant is run by Chinese people. And it looks like the Chinese people don't speak English properly or don't know how to name businesses properly. And so they named it they China food. Um, But the joke is actually that the reality is much stranger You see a Chinese restaurant, it has a weird name. You think that's because of uh, a language barrier problem. But then you go into the Chinese restaurant in this instance and find out that it's run by Czech immigrants um, Mm -hmm. who don't speak Chinese, don't know anything about China. They've just learned how to make Americanized Chinese food. And they also don't speak English very well. And so they're the ones who named it the China food exclamation point. And so it's just like taking those little things about everyday experiences where you know things that are designed to work only work 80% of the time and that's way more frustrating than things that don't work at all um and then mixing that with you know inter interdimensional space leeches like attacking your torso holding those two things on the same footing is what gives it the sort of hitchhiker's guide feel in the book and they that comedic footing was lost on the creators of this picture because it didn't make it into the movie at all.
0: Huh. I'm waiting for Scott because <laughs> <laughs> I've I'm got d- I've got a bunch of food for thought here. Uh I like Liam's structural change uh and it, it it's you're absolutely right uh in that it um it it does kind of bring it more in line with the book, in the way that the book is very disjointed, in the same way because again, David's an idiot and David's the one who's uh, who's narrating the whole thing. I I had said that I liked John and David, but I think that I think that Pete's right that you need to uh, you need to tweak them a little bit to make them a little more book. Authentic, I guess, in order to really sell, especially if we're if we're going with with Pete's suggestion that we do a a tonal change as well. I think you really need to nail David in particular. You can almost get away with John being a little meh, but you really need to nail your your narrator character in this case. So maybe actually like leading into him being just a slacker who's over everything including the horrifying stuff is the way to go for that. And so like, I think that would be a a very significant change that would completely change the tone of the movie, because if he is selling that, then even some of the stuff that's already there, like it changes it. Right.
3: Uh, Yeah. The, the vibes that I got from movie Dave were very, I mean, we weren't beat over the head with any specific misogyny, but still the vibes that I got were very incel vibes from him where he's like, you don't understand. I'm the only one who understands all this stuff. And I take it very seriously. Like he seemed very self-serious and whiny at the same time. And that became cloying. You can, you can make a character that way and even make a main character that way, but they have to start showing growth um so he would have had to grow away from that in order for me to buy into the movie more. Um another option would be to go with the Dave from the book who is also really shitty but not in an incel kind of way, much more in like a oh, I don't care about anything. I'm just along for the ride. I'm so exhausted by life and existence. I don't even care at this point. Ugh. Which also tough to take. Um but he has growth in in the book, limited though it may be,
0: especially because the guy who's uh, who believes that life is exhausting then has an existential crisis towards the end of the book and has to grapple with that fact, exactly. Yeah, which is missing from the movie. <laughs> if you want to I- keep the acts of Theseus, you got to add back in the the clone subplot. You got to add back in the the evil clone subplot.
1: I don't. I don't think I was even getting that much
0: out of Dave that he was necessarily
1: uh whiny i think what i was getting mostly out of him is that he was confused by the world that was happening around him and like that like it didn't and he didn't seem to be he didn't seem to be reacting in a way that he was interested in in solving any particular mystery that was being put in front of him i don't know like i think that's why he felt so flat to me it's just like his Uninterestedness didn't play off to me as like s- someone who had like a uh, I don't care man kind of attitude. It just felt like he was just letting things happen and wasn't really interested in whatever it was that was going on.
2: Would you recast him at all? Can like any actor you could
0: think of that would maybe do that job better? Again,
2: get I get that vibe we're looking for.
0: I didn't personally hate the casting, but I get it. If we're going with a different David, maybe. Maybe we do need to find someone else to do the role. No one's immediately jumping into mind, only because I've just put myself on the spot with this. So,
3: <laughs> <laughs> I, I've i tried to think about this, and I haven't been able to land on a good replacement, but um, I, I would like to register that my strong antipathy to the way David is portrayed in the movie does, I think, largely have to do with my personal... A revulsion at just like one of the facial expressions that actor makes sometimes, and I understand. <laughs> yeah, I that think that's I can like see really that
1: that the facial expression valid you're criticism to in my
3: head too. <laughs> he just makes this little sneer that I yep. don't like at all, and that's not constructive criticism or or useful <laughs> feedback or even a well thought out point. I just see parts of this guy's face and I don't like it.
0: <laughs> My my um. actual fix suggestion for this movie, and the reason why I haven't mentioned it until now, was actually to do pretty much the exact opposite of what Liam was suggesting, which was mm. uh, zero in on the one story from the book that you want to tell. Because the book tells a couple different stories, and the movie tries to almost have its cake and eat it too here, and it just it can't pull it off. Which, I mean, you can't have your cake and eat it, too. But the the movie tries anyway, and it doesn't. But zero in on the one plot you want to tell and just get rid of everything else. You can keep the framing device with Arnie around whatever story you want to tell. I think you tell the, the story with the detective, and you just cut out everything else. And then do that good enough that hopefully you maybe get a sequel and you can mm-hmm. tell another one of the stories after that because you've yeah. got, you've got all these vingettes. Um, And I think that, that the movie fell down because it was trying to tell too much around the one story that it really wanted to focus on. And it, it, because it wasn't spending enough time on the main story, the main story fell flat a little bit. And then all of these other disparate things happen that don't make sense and don't really tie together. and, I kind of like Liam's version better where it is kind of a disjointed mess. But at the same time, there's, there's maybe value in just focus in on one, do it right, do it well, and then you're going to be able to tell the rest. Hopefully, maybe.
3: Especially because what they did film had enough um, cop story in it to be a cool, like, oblique telling of a cop story where, where it's being told. Not just from somebody who is sort of the object of the cops investigation, but the 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 dumb best friend of the object of the investigation. Yeah. <laughs> um and that story itself in the book has a has a really good logical climax that happens in Las Vegas. Yep. Um then there's a semi apocalyptic event that they avert, uh, that just doesn't happen in this book at all. They kind of like yep kill off the cop and then just sort of wheel back into no man's land for a minute until they find another thread to follow.
1: I think it's, it's, it's interesting. Uh, we, we've talked so much about, uh, linear versus nonlinear. Um, cause I do feel that the movie wants to be linear, linear, like despite the fact that it has those, like those opening vignettes and what Liam said about like it trying to be like this sort of like arrival before arrival happened. Like it really once it gets past those first t- two scenes, really just seems to want to just like take a take just like a pretty straight line to like you know how do these guys become like some sort of like paranormal uh, power duo or whatever you want to call it. And I I like I so in that sense I think that Scott's right. I think I think focusing on one of those storyline threads is probably the best angle to take. I what I like about Liam's suggestion is that. Um at least for me like when a movie gets too too nonlinear I I typically start not necessarily check out but I don't like it, I get I can get frustrated quickly I I like structure in my movie but I, I I love that what Liam suggested has like this this clear anchor um so that I think it would make all those vignettes really fun so I I I like both suggestions that uh, that have come out of this
0: Liam's suggestion makes for an interesting movie my suggestion makes for an interesting Netflix series. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Yeah. yeah. I, mean, I think <laughs> I think if you if you could do like an eight episode miniseries on Netflix with like 45 to hour long minute episodes, you could do the book justice because you could have every episode be a different vignette from the book with the through line framing device being him telling all these stories to Arnie in the Chinese restaurant with the payoff being Arnie's actually been dead the whole time at the end of the last episode. I think that that would be a great mm-hmm. Netflix series or streaming series. doesn't need to be Netflix. I'm using Netflix as shorthand there. Um, That could have worked. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I don't, I, I, I... I agree,
2: and I think that what I'm pitching is a little bit of that. I know I sort of described it like Tampopo, where you see whole scenes where like characters are not involved. Um, I, I don't think you have to go quite that far. I guess in my version, what I'm seeing, what I'm seeing in my head is he's telling all of these anecdotes where he was a tangential character to Arnie, and there's one he li- they go and solve this one groovy mystery, um, and get one little piece. Of let's say the Korok story, and then on another little tangent, they get one other little piece of the Korok story, and all three or four or however many little tangential stories, they all dovetail into that into the one climax, which I even think maybe is what they're trying to do here. But uh, please don't mistake my pitch to just be like it's a sketch movie. Um, (laughs) I just meant more like the um, tangents reinforce a theme and all build towards one sort of climax climax
1: about the nature of the sauce. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I think be it the subject matter like that. I think that would have been a lot of fun, especially considering like how, um, how weird the movie wants to be. Mm-hmm. And like having those types of vine- vignettes kind of gives you a real opportunity to explore the, 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 the book and
0: the movie's weirdness. <laughs> that, that's interesting Greg. I think you just hit the nail right on the head. This movie wants to be weird and you can see that it wants to be weird and because mm-hmm. the book is weird and it's not weird enough. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I
3: actually yeah, um I did I had this thought I I wasn't going to say it in the podcast recording but since you bring it up uh i had the thought when i was watching it uh i think it was after one of the jokes went over particularly poorly where i was like this is it's also not a perfect fit because don coscarelli's not a billionaire but this is what it would look like if elon musk wanted to make this movie um (laughs) he would have been able to pour way more money into it um But just like, he wants so badly, he's one of these people who's very, very famous, very, very powerful, and wants so badly to be funny. And he just cannot be, he's incapable of being funny, he's just either mean-spirited or horribly awkward. And this movie wants so badly to be uh, weird and justifiably snide, and
0: it ends up being uh, boring and whiny. Maybe the book is just one of those rare things that is hard to translate because of that. Because the book is authentic and the movie feels like a photocopy of it. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Like we can probably just distill it into it just that the movie just the the, or the screenwriter writers just don't quite get it. In the same way that like if you're gonna make like the, the billionaire comparison, like if you look at that new Lord of the Rings series, right? Mm-hmm. Like they put it all together, um, they they made it look absolutely beautiful, right? And uh, you know, when you can, and arguably there's some good stuff in there, but like as a whole, it just didn't quite get it. <laughs>
2: right. And in the same way, I asked, who would you recast? Um. Uh, who would you change as director? Then? Uh, no, no, I don't think this is like all to be laid at the feet of uh, the director. But like, if, well, if, if, because he also wrote it, who, yeah. who could have done this better?
0: Edgar Wright? Don Coscarella um, did Bubba Hotep. And I think yeah, Bubba Hotep uh, is, Bubba Hotep's great. Is, is, is right in the wheelhouse for what this movie wants to be. So I don't know. I don't know that there's a better director. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, maybe Edgar actually, Wright
2: or uh, Jason Reitman. Um, maybe,
0: I don't know.
3: Craig Mazin, he's, you know, too busy right now, but (laughs) he has the comedy chops, I guess. Like, he made Hangover um, and a bunch of other, like, really uh, boring comedy blockbusters from the early and mid-2000s, and then he made Chernobyl, right? And now he's doing (laughs) The Last of Us, so he has this ability to tell these stories incredibly and to go off on tangents without losing focus and to be episodic and overarching at the same time. And he's directing our
0: Netflix series version of this. Yeah. Um, (laughs) And then he, he also
3: has, you know, experience writing and working with comedies. Um, so, yeah, I think Craig Mazin would be a good thing. Um, in terms of recasting Dave, I just had a, an idea, although this actor is too old for the character of Dave, who is, mm. I think, 20. He's supposed to be a slacker who's two years out of high school, so that puts him in 20-year-old range. Um, but Nicholas Braun, who plays cousin Greg on Succession, okay, I think if we wanted to take him out of the awkward cameo role that he's in as cousin greg on succession and put him in the above it all cooler than thou attitude of dave i think that would be a good fit for him
0: honestly like a a freaks and geeks era seth rogan would probably do david justice yeah. too
3: yeah i was also thinking about either of the franco's i think one of the franco's is not really working so much anymore but either of the franco's for um for john
2: -hmm great yeah I think we've got uh whether it's whether it's an extended series or a damp style um herald uh, I think we've we've definitely hit the nail on the head with how we can fix this and then again a, a, a tonal change whether that's uh more <laughs> script rewrites or a fully different director or creative team behind it um, I think all of that would have benefited this I movie. I think that's, I
3: that's so. a, a cowardly dilemma to say that it either has to be a feature film that's uh, an hour and a half in length or an eight-hour uh, series, that it should be a seven-and-a-half-hour feature film like Bella Tar's Satan Tango*, and everybody should be forced to sit in the movie theater without <laughs> an intermission and watch it for all seven-and-a-half hours. Hey,
0: if RRR <laughs> can top three hours and be rad... Oh, so uh, far then I think you could you could do that justice. Though I will also say, in fairness, I have not suggested turning the movie that we're discussing into a <laughs> mini series for a while. It, yeah, it is something great. I haven't pulled out of my pocket in a while. So
2: Yeah. I wonder actually if the director of RRR would have done this well. He really knows how to go hard on some wild That's true. Dishes. Yeah. Yeah.
1: That would have been cool. Uh, on that note, like, can I interject one more sure. potential director? Um, yep. have, has anyone seen *The Endless* or *Something in the Dirt*? Uh, no, but uh, *Endless* yes. is on my watch
0: list. I've seen uh, them I,
1: both. Yes, um, I, if you if you haven't, go go watch one of those. Uh, maybe *Something in the Dirt* so maybe a little bit closer, but I can definitely see these guys doing something uh, like
3: John dies at the end. They would be incredible because they co-write together, they co-direct together, and then they act together in something in the dirt. And it winds up being a documentary about a documentary that they tried to make about a paranormal phenomenon (laughs) that they (laughs) may or may not have witnessed. And it's so (laughs) overcomplicated that it just it's it's so overcomplicated and then they screw it up so badly that it works perfectly i think
0: i think liam and i just hit upon the same, same director
2: well let's say let's say it together and see if we match because you guys were talking about that i think we know the directors one two three daniels, daniels.
1: <laughs> oh, yeah yeah
0: <laughs> daniels could handle this material daniels absolutely well. could have handled it Yep. yeah, yeah. there we go like <laughs> liam and i both like caught eyes on the feed, and we were both, like, gesturing at each other, we both had the exact same (laughs) idea. You're duo directors, oh my god. The exact same idea, yep. Love it.
1: One more, Uh, Lord Miller too, they seem to be able to take just about anything that's, like, bonkers, like, somehow they just kind of keep spinning gold, so. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'd let them take a crack at it, sure. Yeah. Sorry, uh... Sorry, Don,
2: you're cut. Uh, um... (laughs) Uh, but also, uh, let's get more collaborators in on this. Let's get more names attached because we have some listener comments. Thank you to everyone who contributed. Please keep your eye on our social medias. When we look for these comments, we always appreciate your feedback. Gives us new perspectives. Gives us a little, uh, close out to the end of the show. Listener comments. Uh, Robin from cinematological says, give it 10 times the budget and let it ride.
0: (laughs) I mean, more money might've helped hmm it at least would have made the special effects look better
1: i, I think and, i would have i think i would have enjoyed to see what like you know a billion dollar mess this movie could have been yeah <laughs>
0: they should have put
3: uh they should have given coscarelli james cameron money um and then at the very least they would have been casting out of a different pool
1: and, and, and give him yeah. nine years to make it too
2: yeah yeah <laughs> Yeah, you say casting out of a different pool. I was looking to see, you know, obviously Paul Giamatti, Clancy Brown, um, lots of great actors in this. But the two guys, they haven't done much. And it looks like John mostly plays hunky love interests in Hallmark Christmas movies. (laughs) So, uh, listener Amanda says, throw the whole dang movie away. What a mess.
0: Oh, it's it's salvageable. (laughs) You don't have to throw it all away. Yeah. Though to be fair Amanda
2: is is my partner and we we finished watching that and she was like she she honestly said this might be the worst movie I've ever seen.
0: Really? Um which I was like, "Oh,
2: baby strap in. I can
1: show you some worse." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We've seen some you bad. You clearly movies. haven't seen Blue's Brothers 2000 yet. Oh, I'm <laughs> never going to live that one down. <laughs> <I've>, <laughs> you know, it's-, it's funny when I when I when I when I watched the trailer to sort of get an idea of like what I was getting myself into with John dies at the end. I sat back in my chair afterwards and thought, this is such a Liam movie. (laughs) (laughs) It's, it's beyond weird and it appeals to no one. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, Pete, you're going to say,
3: Oh, um, I, I've seen many movies that are much worse than this, but, uh, the, how much Amanda hates it. Is so much funnier than anything in the movie itself. <laughs> I I love that yeah. it made her so mad. I think that's she hilarious. Was so mad.
2: And not even like at the end, like she he was talking on the hot dog phone, and she's like, "I'm kind of over this." <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah. Some people love it. Some people hate it. Uh, I'm gonna have to make her watch Rise of Skywalker. Uh, <laughs> Half Brags <of> Horror <laughs> says Needs a sequel and a spinoff For Clancy Brown's character Full disclosure I would watch the hell out of that Yeah okay. Agreed Net, uh, Streaming eight episode streaming thing We get the whole we get the Clancy Brown episode
0: Oh yeah we'd get a whole episode with Clancy Brown For sure
2: yeah. 100% uh, And that concludes our listener comments Thank you to everyone who contributed um, Pete anywhere folks can find you online Or anything you want
3: to plug Oh, my gosh. Um, no, as a matter of fact, you can't find me online anywhere by design. Yeah. I, uh, I nuked myself from the Internet on purpose uh, because of the work that I do and the scary people that might try to find me through the Internet. Um, so don't look for me. Uh, you'll never find me. And <laughs> uh, chances are I don't want to talk to you anyway. Um, Nice.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's the best plug I think we've ever had on this show. (laughs) I
2: love it. And I guess maybe we'll, in the show notes for this, we'll credit you as David Wong or something so that, you know, you have to actually click on the episode and listen to hear us name you, uh, by first and last name. I'm not,
3: I'm not in hiding. I'm not like in WITSEC or anything. You can go ahead and, and, uh, and credit me in the liner notes. Uh, but yeah, I, I actually just nuked my Twitter not too long ago, because um, I'd had one too many brushes with people who weren't doxing me yet. Right. <laughs> Yikes. Yeah. Well, you're doing doing
2: the Lord's work. <laughs> uh, as are we over on our social medias. You can follow us at, at facebook.com slash I have some notes at I have some notes on Twitter at I have some notes pod on Instagram. And wherever it is you are listening to this episode, please give us a rate, a review, a subscribe, a whatever little buttons and widgets your podcatcher wants you to press. Press them twice if you if you can.
0: Hey, this is a movie about uh, David and John fighting an eldritch abomination. Wouldn't you know it? There's a podcast that's basically the same thing as Kyle and Dave go up against... Uh, Ascension Machine Which are ordering them to watch movies That's Kyle and Dave versus The Machine You can find them right now At albertapodcastnetwork.com And we'll of course be
1: Back again in two weeks Uh, Not sure what we'll be Reviewing but rest assured It will be a movie Until then I'm your host Liam Kreswick I'm Scotty Bourgeois I'm Greg Beaver Keep watching the skies